Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.24 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It's the 12th of May, 2022. This is episode 589 of Bitcoin. And we're going to do something about soil to start with. And I'm going to try to do this in a way that connects back to what's going on with the whole UST and Luna shit and the... I don't know. Some people are saying that it's an attack on, like a a leveraged attack on Bitcoin. Other people just think it's a general attack on Bitcoin. I don't know. I I literally don't know. I, and I don't care, which is why I'm going to talk about soil, if that makes sense. And I'll I'll make it make sense. I've also got a couple of long pieces uh, to read you in the second half of the show, at least from uh, Bitcoin Magazine that I think may you know don't really feed into the whole UST Luna thing they may uh but I I just found them kind of interesting and wanted to give those to y'all but first before we do anything again if you want to support the show 2.0 podcasting is what I really I really enjoy it why because you can go get any one of a multitude of podcasting 2.0 apps and you don't really have to do anything if you want to support the show, except, you know, search for the show inside the app, load up the wallet that, is, that has to come with the app. Otherwise, it's not podcasting 2.0 and it's a lightning wallet. And when you find my show, that's all you have to do. You just listen. And if you want to uh, stream me Satoshi's, you can just turn on the streaming function. How does that work? Well, it works because the RSS feed that I gave to the Podcasting 2.0 folks was rearranged to fit the spec of Podcasting 2.0. What what do I mean by rearranged? I mean that I gave them my RSS feed and I gave them my Lightning Node address and they combined them. So in Podcasting 2.0, when any of the Podcasting 2.0 apps when you search for any podcast, it only looks through the index of those podcast RSS feeds that have been modified with a lightning node or some kind of lightning lightning address. It doesn't have to be a full node. It can be a wallet. It can be anything. But at that point, whenever it is that you find the show, <clears throat> the, the Bitcoin and podcast in podcasting 2.0, it's pulling the modified RSS feed off that index. And that's it. All you have to do is say, hey, I want to stream Satoshi's at one sat per minute, 10 sats per minute, whatever, and you can boost. And you don't have to worry that those Satoshi's might be going somewhere else. They're coming to me because they have to, because my lightning address is inside the RSS feed that you got when you search for the Bitcoin and podcast. See how that works? You don't have to do a whole lot of stuff. You have to do two things or well, three things. You got to search for the podcast. 
you gotta you don't even have to subscribe to it honestly if you're just listening to it as long as you're listening to it and you're streaming satoshis it's coming to my to my lightning node you do have to get a wallet or i mean you do have to actually fund the wallet that's inside that particular podcasting 2.0.0 app and then you have to turn on streaming and or boost me through throughout the show that's it and you don't have to worry if the satoshis are going off into space and disappearing through a black hole or anything like that. I know I'm getting them and now you know I'm getting them too. Otherwise, it is patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and podcast. That way you can use the legacy rails of the old fashioned legacy financial system. Now, let's recap a bit about what's going on with Terra and Luna and all this ridiculous bullshit that we're watching. By the way, if you haven't noticed, uh, right now, Luna, at it from its high of like 90 bucks a coin, Dogecoin is now three times its value at 7.8 United States pennies. That means Luna has dropped from $90 to somewhere around two cents or two United States pennies, or 2% of a United States dollar. Just let that sink in, and that's been over three days. Just saying, I just want to caveat this entire thing with this. But before we talk about soil, I want to talk about this, and Joseph Hall is going to help us out from Cointelegraph. Terra to burn 1.4 billion UST and stake 240 million Luna to, quote, stop the bleeding. (laughs) The Terra rescue story continues to unravel. In a tweet thread, the Terra Money Twitter account went into great detail regarding the CEO of Terraform Labs, Duquan's rescue plan for UST. The thread sheds light on Proposal 1164, Duquan's initial strategy for Terra from May the 11th. The proposal would better balance the algorithmic stablecoin Terra USD or UST by expanding the base pool for the currency. The proposal has received 220,000 votes at roughly over 50%. The tweet thread also explains that there is a supply overhang of UST which explains Terra's Luna dilution or price depreciation. You spelled fucking crash wrong. As a result, now they must burn more UST. Quote, The primary obstacle in expelling the bad debt from UST circulation at a clip fast enough for the system to restore the health of on-chain spreads. End quote. Consequently, there are three emergency measures to be implemented, one of which focuses on burning more UST. And here's the tweet from at Terra underscore money, which I assume is Terra's, I don't know, Twitter, main Twitter account or whatever. Anyway, it says there's three proposals here. Proposal to burn the remaining UST in the community pool. They're going to burn it all? Okay, whatever. TFL will burn the remaining 371 million UST cross-chain on Ethereum. Contagion, TFL, just stake 240 million Luna to defend from network governance attacks. Okay, so that's the tweet. Now, getting back into the body of the article, the so-called Agora proposal vote is imminent, shared by user The Intern on the Terra Research Forum 
In total, the burn should take the total amount of UST burned to 1.4 billion UST, or 11% of the outstanding UST liabilities. In summary, the team hopes that expanding the base pool for the coin and burning more should save UST. I guess they're going to put more on because they're morons. Get it? Point three. Concerning the staking of 240 million Luna will reportedly strengthen the network governance of the Terra ecosystem. However, for some observers, staking 240 million Luna or roughly equivalent to $200 million is not enough to save the project. Uh, other commentators have suggested that Proposal 1164 will actually accelerate the ongoing death spiral of Luna and UST. Cointelegraph previously reported that the crypto community was quick to call out Quan's algorithmic stablecoin. Plus, out-of-the-ordinary theories have also been shared reward or regarding a planned attack on the ecosystem orchestrated by competing players. Indeed. I saw a tweet this morning that was a uh, screenshot of Du Quan making fun of somebody who was outlining this exact attack not terribly long ago. Before all this shit occurred, before all of it occurred, okay, there was a guy, and I can't remember his name, and I'm not going to read the go back and find the tweet thread because it's not that important. All you need to know is that there was a guy who was like going, okay, after looking at Terra and Luna and this, the, you know, the way that this algorithmic stablecoin works, I've deduced that the following attack is probably going to be put into play. And he literally outlined this exact, exactly what's going on almost to the letter. I, I, I don't know if he's behind the attack. It doesn't really matter. We'll get into why in a second. Um, so Duquan retweeted his head tweet of that thread and literally lambasted him, calling him stupid. Let that sink in. Oh my God, this is, it's such a mess. And I, I do, I honestly feel bad for the people that got into Luna because they lost everything. Just, just like BitConnect. If you were not around for the BitConnect fiasco, it was a lot like this. It was different Okay, because it was done under different auspices, it was done in a different way. It, it, it was more marketing based at to lure people in than it was, you know, the stablecoin seems to have some kind of utility. There was absolutely no utility for BitConnect at, at all, so it was pure 100% marketing. You know, at least Luna and Terra had the had the good graces to at least lie about a potential utility coin, right? But alas, just like BitConnect, there are, I have no idea how many people are going to be affected by this. And, but, and I have no idea, well, I have no idea to what extent they're affected because if they put all their money in, well, they lost all their money and they're never going to get it back. And now they'll be living under a bridge. Um, some people only, you know, probably put in, you know, whatever they could afford to lose, which is the smart play because you could afford to lose it. It's not, it's no skin off your nose. If, you know, you took a tumble on Luna, but if, if history holds true, what's happened is that a shit ton of people are going to be needing the suicide hotline number. And I do not say that lightly, the BitConnect days, and there were several other, other issues with different coins along the way where Reddit threads would blow up with uh, people saying how they mortgaged their house. Now they're they're going to lose it because they lost it all on BitConnect or some other shitcoin. 
and people would post the suicide hotline number. And while it did become a meme, uh, it should not be laughed about because these people have lost real wealth. So as much as I don't mind seeing shit coins crash and burn, I always have to remember that there's a human story behind each one of the people that are going to be affected by this. Please, for the love of God, tell your friends not to shitcoin. Do anything that you can to convince them why this shit is always going to happen, how it's happening right now, and how it always has happened. I spoke yesterday that I believe that there's contagion in the market. Well, Tether's starting to lose its peg. Let's find out more. Ezra Ruguera from Cointelegraph says, Tether to move over 1 billion USDT from Tron to Ethereum and Avalanche. <sighs> Following recent developments in the sphere of stablecoins, Tether, USDT, has announced that it's coordinating a chain swap to transfer USDT assets from Tron's TRC-20 to Ethereum and Avalanche's blockchains. In a tweet, Tether said that 1 billion USDT will be moved from Tron's blockchain to Ethereum. On the other hand, an additional 20 million USDT will be converted to Avalanche. According to Tether, this will not change the total supply of the stablecoin. The announcement came amid fears of a stablecoin meltdown after the recent Terra USD and Terra Luna debacle. Apart from this, USDT also showed price fluctuations slipping below 99 cents on many exchange platforms on Thursday. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, it is Thursday. Oh my God. Shit. Dude. I can't believe I thought it was Wednesday. Uh-oh. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Trust me, I know the rest of it. However, in a Cointelegraph interview, uh, Tether's chief technology officer, Paulo Arduino, assured traders that USDT is not like algorithmic stablecoins such as UST. Yeah, Paulo, that's not going to matter. People don't know the difference between either one of them, by and large. Arduino said that Tether has a strong conservative and liquid portfolio that consists of cash and cash equivalents. This includes T-bills, money market funds, and commercial paper holdings. Arduino also pointed out that the ongoing fear, uncertainty, or doubt um, surrounding stablecoins is becoming a money-making stream for some traders. He explained that some firms are buying USDT below $1 on some exchanges and are redeeming it for above $1 on Bitfinex and the Tether website. In another statement released by Tether, the firm highlighted that verified customers are still able to redeem USDT on its website. The stablecoin issuer reported that it's not facing any issues even after honoring 300 million USDT redemptions in the last 24 hours. Arduino said that despite multiple black swan events, the stablecoin never failed to honor a redemption. Quote, Tether is gratified that the market continues to show its trust and confidence in Twitter. Ah, Twitter. In Tether. We are a quickly evolving industry, and as an industry, we will learn from these events together. End quote. Oh, for God's sakes. Meanwhile, Terra co-founder Du Quan recently shared plans to restore the UST stablecoin peg. Yeah, I know. We read all about it. Um, let's see. Is there anything else in there? Because of this... 
Quan endorsed the increase of the base pool from 50 million to 100 million special drawing rights. Yeah, we did that yesterday. Okay, so now it's starting to affect Tether. And I mentioned that yesterday because I noticed while reading another article that the Tether price had dipped to 99.7 United States pennies. And I, you know, quote or quipped that 99.7% of a dollar is not $1. It is 99.7% of a dollar. So now Tether is looking square in the face. And I can almost guarantee you that Tether is going to come under this attack. This seems to be, honestly, it seems to be a simple arbitrage attack. Is this, this whole thing. This whole thing just seems to be a very simple arbitrage attack. And it is fucking effective as hell. Just because it's going after uh, Terra does not mean that it won't come after Tether or USDC, Circle's uh, USD stablecoin. So just you guys really need to understand how mentally prepared you need to be for the next two years. I'm not calling for a crash of Bitcoin's price to 10,000. I, I don't get into TA like that shit. I just don't. It's not worth your time. It's not worth my time. But the market is going to royal because we have twin situations going on. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the macro economic markets of the legacy financial system that are on fire. And if anybody cannot see just how on fire they are, then you must be blind. And I'm sorry for you. But second, through all this turmoil, we, you know, Bitcoin's been able to be pretty, you know, pretty fucking stable. And then here comes this attack on a stable coin that just happened to hold Bitcoin in reserve. So we'll talk about that more in a little bit. At least I think we will. But finally, now we've got Tether that's moving over to, to uh, some of, a lot of its stuff over to Ethereum, right? Well, now Yashu Gola from Cointelegraph tells us that Ether plunges 13% while Bitcoin pushes BTC dominance to a 2022 high. Is there more pain ahead? Yeah, you damn right there's more pain ahead. Ethereum's native token Ether plunged to its lowest level in two months against Bitcoin as the crypto market sell-off intensified on May the 12th. The Ethereum BTC trading pair fell by 7.5% to 0 0.0663 in the past 24 hours. The downside move came as part of a correction that began May 11th when the pair traded at the local high of 0 0.076. That pushed Ether down against BTC by up to 13.75%. Cryptocurrencies have come under stress in recent weeks alongside stock markets. Notably, money managers, traders, and investors show signs of de-risking their portfolios amid growing concerns over an increasingly hawkish Fed. Ether, the second largest crypto by market cap, has also been hit by the same macro headwinds, now trading 65% lower than its record high of around 4,870 oh, no, in November of 2021. Similarly, Bitcoin is down 63% from its all-time high of 69,000 in the same period. As a result of Ether's slightly limited decline compared to Bitcoin's, the Ether BTC pair has shown resilience despite the market downturn in 2022. Nonetheless, the pair now shows signs of catching up to the bearish trend, suggesting more pain ahead. 
Ethereum BTC's last decline has had it break below its prevailing rising wedge pattern, suggesting the pair's technical downside target could be much lower than May 12th's local lows. That's because rising wedges are bearish reversal patterns that typically send the price lower by as much as their maximum height when measured from the breakdown point. Hence, the Ethereum BTC pair or Ether BTC pair rising wedges breakdown target comes to be near 0.064 after adding the structure's maximum height, usually around minus 0.009 BTC to the breakdown point of 0.073 BTC. Conversely, Ethereum or Ether BTC pair has been testing an upward sloping trend line marked as the LTF support in the chart above as support since June 2021. The pair's attempt to break below the price floor on May the 12th fell short as traders gathered the, to buy the dip. That prompted Ether to rebound by 3.5% from its intraday low. But ETH faces a sequence of resistance levels, blah, 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 resistance levels. Let's get into the other stuff. Uh, ETH's, or, uh, Ether's and BTC's plunge coincided with the Bitcoin dominance index a metric that measures Bitcoin's market share against altcoins climbing to nearly 45% on May the 12th, its highest level since November 2021. This may also suggest that traders are viewing Bitcoin as a safer bet, the digital gold amid the current market turmoil. All right, guys, l listen, <clears throat> they didn't all they, the, I'm sorry, this was more about TA uh, than anything else, but those are the numbers. Now, why all of a sudden, why all of a sudden is is ETH losing its, for lack of a better term, uh, general peg to BTC over the last couple of last few months? Well, as I said, Tether is now starting to take a heat, and that heat is generated from the dumpster fire that is Terra and Luna, right? So now the heat is starting to affect Tether. So what does Tether do? Well, Tether signals very plainly that it's going to move a bunch of Tether off of Tron onto Ethereum, like we read in the last article. Okay, now people may start going, is there contagion? Is there contagion in these markets? My answer is, you damn right there's contagion in these markets. That contagion is this bullshit altcoin, ICO, and now stablecoin crap, and it looks to me like it's all falling down. So what happens next? Well, here in about... Here in about three minutes, another block is going to be minted on the Bitcoin blockchain, and that's all I give a shit about. Now, where does soil come into all this stuff? Well, I want to go through this. And some of this was kind of prompted by a guy who was saying, hey, you know, you should do these little 10-minute lessons, uh, and, and you should do one about soil. And I kept thinking about how to put that together in terms of Bitcoin and anything else that was going on in, in our world. And I think I, I, found, I found a way. However, it's not going to be like what he's thinking. Um, I am going to try to put those together, but like lately my life is, you know, is sort of like I'm on the event horizon of black hole territory. Don't worry, I'm fine. It's just everything is so weird and it's like nothing to do with Bitcoin. <laughs> it's just everything about my life is just really weird. I ain't circling the drain, but I always looked at a black hole as a passage into some other universe. And I think that that's where I'm, I think that that's where I'm at, but that's more about me. Let's get into the whole soil thing. 
So a while back, I made a statement on Twitter, not terribly long ago, a couple of days, I, I suspect. And I said uh, that insects only attack unhealthy plants. And a guy wrote back and said, no, that's not true. I've seen healthy plants get attacked. Yeah, well, you think they're, they, you think they're healthy. Maybe they look healthy, but are they healthy? And as you well know, I've been diving down the soil health, soil biology, microbiology uh, rabbit hole for quite a while now. And I can safely say the following. Insects really do only attack unhealthy plants. If you come at me and say, yeah, well, this insect, you know, took a bite out of a plant that I know to be healthy. And it's like, yeah, it took one bite, but it didn't mow it to the fucking ground. Now did it. That's because the insect isn't stupid. The insect took a bite of something that it knows that it can't digest. And that's why there's only one bite taken out of it. And not like, you know, not like whole leaves mowed back to the stem. When you see a plant, chili, yeah, I don't know, tomato, grasses, corn, you know, shit like that. When you see leaves and like, you know, crap that's just mowed back to the stem, you've got an unhealthy plant. Why? Because the insect knows it was unhealthy. A lot of people don't understand this, but insects can smell. And one of the things that they are most able to smell is CO2 and methane. These two gases basically signal unhealthy plants when they're, especially when they're together. The methane portion of it is the real red flag for the insect to go, aha. Where, so methane is produced from a fermentation, generally speaking, of microbiology of sugars and things that can become sugars with a proper enzymatic action, i.e. carbohydrates like lignin and uh, other plant-based fibers. You can think of it as like uh, like flour that's ground from wheat. You, you might see flour. I see a pile of sugar. Why? Because it's made out of dextrose in very long chains. And when you get a long enough oligosaccharide, especially in something like dextrose, we call it in biology, it becomes a starch. That starch is, think of potatoes, think of flour, think of ground up barley. Okay, those are starches. But they're made from simple sugars. In the plant world, specifically, most, most of the time it's made out of dextrose, right? That's a sugar. That you can eat, you can eat a spoonful of dextrose, and and it's gonna like affect you like eating a a teaspoon of table sugar, right? That's the same shit. It's got the same breakdown pathways in the body. However, in a plant that is unhealthy, those sugars are in in their simple form in the sap of the plant are not as present as you might think. We call it BRICS, okay? That's a B-R-I-X. You can measure the sugar content of any solution with what's called a refractometer, and I won't get into how it works. It's just brewers use it a lot to make sure that before they finish off their their brewing uh, session and send the wort over to be fermented by yeast, that they know exactly how much sugar that they have going into that. And they use a refractometer to figure out the sugar content and they use a measurement called bricks. Now, 
in plants, you can get a leaf and you can grind it up and you can press it and get a drop of sap out, throw it on a refractometer, and you can tell how much sugar is dissolved in that sap. And a low sugar plant is guaranteed to have health, poor health conditions, right? Insects will attack that plant. Now, what's the BRICS number? Okay, even, even though you don't, you don't need to know how BRICS works or how refractometer works, just remember the number. At four BRICS, that plant is about as unhealthy. Think of type 1 diabetes, right? Or like end-stage cancer. That's what a BRICS of four tells you about almost any terrestrial plant. You get up to a BRICS of about 11 and 12, Okay, so now we're talking three times the amount of sugar in that plant and you get something that isn't so heavily munched on by insects. When you get those bricks up to 14, no insect attacks that plant. Why? Well, one, it's not emitting methane because it's not being, it's not unhealthy. It doesn't have an unhealthy system going on inside of it that is throwing off molecules of methane, right? Because insects can smell that shit from a long way away through their antenna. Now, excuse me. The other thing that happens is that, sure, let's say I got a plant that's got 14 bricks on its uh, its sap analysis. And a a locust or a grasshopper comes by and, and munches it, right? Okay, takes a bite out of it. But it only takes one bite. Why? That plant is so healthy that in the digestive system of the insect, the mass that the insect ingested is unable to be digested because of the high amount of sugar and all of the other processes in the plant are so high functioning that it's building all the proteins it needs, it's building all of the cellulose it needs, it's building like all of the structures that it needs to be a good, solid, healthy plant. And guess what? Insects do not have a mammalian digestive system. Mammals, and this includes ruminants, have an extraordinary capacity to break down all manner of vegetative material. Cows especially, you know, ruminants especially, right? But humans, we can we can tolerate eating lettuce. We can we can tolerate eating a handful of grass. Okay? It was not going to kill us. But it may give us a small tummy ache because we're not cut out to, to, you know, actually eat that kind of stuff. Amazingly enough, insects that attack plants aren't really either. So what, what gives here? Well, it's the soil. It boils down to, do you have good nutrient uh, cycling? Do you have good carbon cycling? Are your, is your soil able to hold on to a shit ton of water for very long periods of time, making drought stress non-existent? Because drought stress, you stress a plant, it'll take its bricks from 14 and rock it down to four real quick. And what happens? Insects come in. Ask me how I know. Every time that I don't, water like Johnny on the spot, a bunch of my comfrey in a particular bed, I get a grasshopper infestation. Whereas before they all wilted down, no grasshoppers would be present. And it doesn't matter what time of the season in the summer that I, that, that I noticed this. If they wilt down to the ground, 
this always happens when I, this actually always happens when I, when, when I don't water and the ground gets dry, they all wilt and I go, Oh fuck, I got to water. And then they stand straight up. And then all of a sudden now I've got a permanent grasshopper infestation. Whereas before not a grasshopper to be seen. And they just, they take my comfrey, just, they just destroy it. But it doesn't matter. Comfrey is like honey badger. It doesn't care. It just comes back up. And so I start year after year and I'm like, you've got to remember to water this shit. So when a plant, good, healthy plant gets stressed, it will become, when it gets stressed, it will become unhealthy. And then it will emit large amounts of CO2 along with methane. Insects will say, aha, a meal. Why? Because stressed plants have low sugar. They are not being able, they aren't able to create all the structures that they need for a good, healthy plant. And that means it's digestible by insects and insects know where to go, how they can smell it from miles and miles and miles away. They can smell an unhealthy plant. Insects are here for a reason. Insects are here to destroy the unhealthy plants in this particular case, not all insects, but at least the plant eating ones, the ones that, that get all of their nutrition by, you know, plants and not carnivorous activity. They all are here to take down vegetation that is not healthy. That's what they eat. If your vegetation is healthy, you don't have an insect problem. This is a fact. And it's because of the soil, Mini mineralization, ability to hold water, nutrient cycling, water cycling, carbon cycling. You have to have that shit too. And I could get into all of that, but that's a whole episode of this show all by itself. And we're here for Bitcoin. So Let's talk about one other thing. Analogous to a plant being unhealthy and then becoming susceptible to a digestive attack by an insect, let's talk about you and me. Healthy people. The state can only attack unhealthy people. What's the soil health here? Okay. I already told you the plant gets healthy by a good high quality soil that, that cycles all the good shit, right? Okay. What's your soil? Well, most of the people in Western civilization at minimum, and we can, in, in Western civilization, it's a poverty of ethics and morals and money. In the rest of the world, it's basically a poverty of money and nutrition. But let's stay with the West, let's stay with the West because most of the people that listen to the show are are not in the middle of Zimbabwe. Okay, <clears throat> they're not in the middle of the Central African Republic in a hut. Right. So, what's your soil? Where do you grow? Where's your roots? What nutrient cycling are you getting? What water cycling enables you to to uh, survive a drought? Well. Most of the population in Western Europe, Canada, Mexico, United States, the West, right? Just the West. Our soil is concrete, brick, steel, because we live in cities. Exhaust, having to work, you know, a job eight hours a day. Most people don't like their jobs. If you, if you like your job, fucking A, you're lucky, dude. But most people don't like their job, so they're sitting you know, on upholstery, polyester. These are our roots. And it's making everybody unhealthy. And you see the insect attack occurring. 
you see it you, you if you don't see a swarm of locusts descending on the population of the world at this point over the last two years again you're blind and i i can't help you i wish i could but i can't what's our soil what's your soil i've said it many times get you don't even have to get the hell out of the, out of the city look for a small city or look to be on like five miles 10 miles maybe even 13 miles away from the edge of a large city. You can drive an extra 13 miles. It's not going to kill you. And your soil will be better. You will not be planted in concrete and brick and steel and aluminum and fake-ass looking buildings and shitty-ass architecture. And you may, you may not make as much money. But I guarantee you, you're going to be able to withstand the attacks of the locust that is the state. Uh, we have to start, we, we're going to have to start doing something. They're not going to stop. The onslaught will continue. Again, likewise with people and plants, the market. The market only uh, attacks unhealthy things like the, the housing bubble in 2008, right? And many times before that, we won't get into all of them. I'm running out of time. But the market as a, f- a-, a-, as a critter, th- th- the market wasn't made by some you know group of people like designed i mean it was made by all of us together it was that we discovered this thing called the market we didn't build it the market has always existed the market always has a budget there's a water budget when people are looking to put together how they're going to manage wetlands they talk about a water budget there is a soil budget there is a nitrogen budget this all goes back to soil we get our markets and the idea of markets come directly from the soil, whether we know it or not. And the markets will untack, will attack only the unhealthy things. Just like you're seeing Terra and Luna and possibly Tether. Looks like Tether's going down too. Ethereum is having problems. All of the shit coins always do. There's always rug pulls. DeFi is, these are all unhealthy systems. What is my prognosis? They will be attacked by a swarm of insects and they will be gnawed all the way back down to the ground and they may sprout up again and they will get sick again and they will be gnawed back down to the ground again. And eventually every, the only thing left standing is going to be Bitcoin. Why? Because even as these markets are attacking each other and this, you know, the, the stones and arrows are knocking up against Bitcoin's wall in roughly seven minutes from now at 9.03 a.m. Central Standard Time or Central Daylight Time, a new block is going to be minted and there's going to be transactions in that block. There's nothing unhealthy about the underlying system. What is Bitcoin's soil? And think about this one. I'll end with this. What's the soil for Bitcoin? What is, that, what is that soil cycling? How is it drought resistant? How is it cycling nitrogen? What's its carbon cycle? How deep is that soil? The soil for Bitcoin is the hearts and minds of the people that want to be free, that see the corruption of everything that's in the world right now and has been corrupt for 5,000 years, if not 5,000 longer than that. In my opinion, that is the healthiest soil that you could possibly grow in. It needs to correct its function. It wants to correct its functions. 
Do you want to know who's having fun staying poor? You are. You're selling your chairs for Bitcoin and you're not spending your Bitcoin. We're the, of all the times that we release the have fun staying poor train on some poor unsuspecting dweeb that comes in to say he's going to fix Bitcoin or that Bitcoin sucks. We are actually the ones that are having fun staying poor and we're doing it for a reason. It's not because we're monks. It's because we see something that most people do not see yet and they will not see it until they figure out how the markets are acting right now and what their, those market activities are telling them. And everything the market is going after right now is unhealthy. You can tell what's unhealthy when the market attacks it. So the Luna situation is, is sort of an external attack on Bitcoin. But because the soil of Bitcoin has great holding capacity of nutrition, i.e. morals, carbon cycling, i.e. ethics, drought resistance, because it's got a shit ton of carbon in the soil, i.e. tick-tock next block, and nobody controls it, it can withstand the droughts. It can get a little bit unhealthy, and yes, insects will gnaw on it, but not like the dead, not like the fields of monocultures of unhealthy shit coinery that lies all about it. I'll end with this example. In Africa, they have locust swarms still of biblical size, biblical, and I'm not exaggerating. And there was a couple of soil scientists that I listened to and read, and they were talking. These are not, they were not there at the same time. Okay. These are two different guys that didn't know each other. And they were both in Africa, not, and not at the same time. And they both witnessed the following event, two massive fields of grain in sub-Saharan Africa. A locust swarm comes by and takes the left field, which is sitting right next to the right field, but managed differently to the ground. The field on the right was untouched. Why? Because the field on the right, the farmer was doing the proper things when it came to soil. And it created healthy plants that locusts knew they could not digest. Why waste the time? Field on the left was fully digestible by the insect swarm. Plants looked the same, but they were not the same. Insects only attack unhealthy plants. Let's run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities. West Texas Intermediate is up scant 0.019% to $105.73. Brent North Sea is actually down six tenths of a percent down to $106.87. Natural gas likewise down, I don't know, a tenth of a point, $7.63 per thousand. And gasoline is up one and a half points to $3.74 a gallon. Gold down uh, 0.71% to 1840 bucks and 50 cents. is down damn near three points. Ooh, sub 21 
$20.95. Platinum down damn near 5% to 9.40 and a half. Copper down 3.41. Palladium is down, ladies and gentlemen, 6.59%. Agricultural futures are mostly down with rice being the winner and only the winner at 0.85% to the upside. And the biggest loser today again is coffee. Point, no, 2.96% to the downside. Uh, just so you know, rice, or not rice, cotton is actually up a half a point. Dow is down 0.74%. S&P futures down over 1%. NASDAQ futures down over 1.5%. And the S&P mini is down 0.39%. And clearly, real money is struggling at $28,232.35 with 3.5 million BTC being sent in the last 24 hours. That's 150,000 BTC every hour on the hour with an average transaction value of 2.94 BTC, a median transaction value uh, really high today, 0.027 or 761 bucks. And guess what? Block times are hideously low at nine minutes and 32 seconds. What do they know that we don't? Uh, 0.2 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and 30.1, no, no, 30.87 BTC taken in fees on a per, uh, on a per, uh, per 24 hour period. My heavens, I haven't seen it that high in quite a while. Uh, hash rate uh, has fallen, but only by 2.76%. We are still at 226.1 exahashes per second. Dogecoin at 7 0.6 United States pennies for the longest time. It was holding between 11 and 15 cents. And now it's at 7.6. And that's still three times higher than fucking Luna. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. And if you lost all your money in Luna, my, my heart goes out to you, but we tried to warn you and we do it every day. And we get laughed at every day and we get pointed at and made fun of every day. And we get called maxis every day. And yet still we persist. Buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin, buy more Bitcoin. There are 46,000 transactions waiting on 102 blocks to clear, ladies and gentlemen. Bitcoin's uh, market cap is uh, $537.6 billion, which is only 4.5% of gold's market cap now. And we can get a mere 15.4 ounces of shiny metal rock with our one Bitcoin, of which there are 19 million. 37,754.68 of, and 3,796.2 of those are in the Lightning Network, locked in at $107.2 million. Normally, it's $144 million, just saying. Being run over 16,991 nodes, sporting 83,263 payment channels, and 73% of all of it's being run over TOR's associated 11,893 nodes. That's going to do it for vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use. And by the way, I may not get through both of these articles that I've got rigged up. I didn't realize I was going to take that that long on the soil piece. Uh, so we're going to start with this one and see. we'll see what happens. Joaquim Book is writing it for Bitcoin Magazine. No one understands the monetary system, and that's not okay. Quote, 
If you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Carl Sagan. Among the first objections that arise for anyone who has just learned about Bitcoin is this is too complicated to understand. And it's true. Private keys, block times, difficulty adjustments, UTXOs, uncensorable coin join transactions, hash something or something. The learning curve is steep. And for most, the reasons to ascend it seem few and far between. The first time I was introduced to Bitcoin in practice, not in theory, the intimidatingly tech savvy guy who did so botched the process. First, he had me download some shady looking app, which I didn't have any space for on my phone. And so ironically, I was, or I first had to remove a few podcasts on monetary economics. Second, he had the app generate some random words and in the absence of pen and paper, had me type them into my phone's cloud saved note-taking app. Third, he tried to send me 100,000 sats, but the spotty internet on his phone kept interrupting the process. Clearly, I wouldn't become a convinced Bitcoiner that evening. The hardships of the process seemed altogether useless. The cure, worse than the central banking disease it supposedly tried to solve. After he had gotten his shit together and my polite patience having run out a half dozen times, he finally managed to send the sats and triumphantly expressed, see, see, this transaction happened without anybody knowing and nobody could stop it. Not impressed. I pulled out a $5 bill, handed it to him and mockingly imitated his triumph. See, see, that happened without anybody knowing and nobody could stop us from doing it. Bearer assets are nothing new in the history of money. And all he had convinced me of was that Bitcoin was some complicated digital way of doing that. But if the tech raptured can't effortlessly do it, what hope is there for you and me? And you're disintermediating a banking system, the purpose of which is to effect efficiently and securely make payments and to make lending and borrowing possible. Nobody was trying to stop anybody's payments. What was this guy on about? It would be years before I would see those troubles of the current fiat payment system network. On the Bitcoin 2021 stage, Alex Gladstein wanted to illustrate the simplicity of using Bitcoin by sending sats in real time to Strike's fundraising campaign for Bitcoin development. It was eerily similar to the Bitcoin zealot I had described above. Quote, so I'm on the Strike page right here and I'm going to go ahead and donate, you know, $2 worth of Bitcoin to Strike. It is going to go and it's gone. That's a bearer asset that has just moved instantly around the world and I didn't ask permission from anybody. End quote. Alex Gladstein. Gladstein succeeded much better <clears throat> in illustrating a lightning payment than the guy who first tried to send me Bitcoin all those years ago. Naturally, the audience woed and applauded, but the informed critic could equally well have responded with yes, and Venmo does that too. In an episode for the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, Mark Maria explained his approach to onboarding boomers, <clears throat> that demographic with money, time, and a healthy fear of government overreach, yet not exactly known for their advanced technological know-how. Quote, forget all the theory, Maria says, pointing to everyday items like computers or iPhones. Do you honestly know how they work? Quote, I have absolutely no clue, he says, and adds crucially that, that's okay. His quip is nice and comforting. Nobody understands technology X and that's fine because we see what technology X does and we can use it. Similarly, if we don't understand Bitcoin, that's still okay, except that it's not. 
understanding what Bitcoin can do for you, its use case requires you to understand the incumbent monetary system. Unlike a phone, a car, a computer, there is no visible value add in using Bitcoin for a middle of the road Westerner who has never been sanctioned, never done anything illegal, never tried to buy goods or services that a payment processor or government disapproves of, has their salaries and savings indexed to inflation, don't understand why recessions happen, and on a government pay for, payroll at least, don't suffer harm from them, or what central banks do or where money comes from. I don't need to understand any of the underlying tech in a phone to see how I might use it and how it could assist my life. But in contrast, Bitcoin's value add is tied up with its compared to what alternative in the incumbent monetary system that 99% of us never think about. That's because that never cause us any payment related troubles and we consequently pay no attention to. And there's a cartoon here that shows three fish. One says, how's the water to the other two fish? And the one of the other two fish says, what the hell is water? If you don't understand that, I would ponder it for a while. Continuing, a Visa card in Apple Pay can instantly pay for things halfway across the world too. For international transfers, Wise or Revolut or a plethora of fintechs can move bank money across the world in seconds. Tech is not the thing. Digital is not the value add. Of course, most Bitcoiners know that the VisaWise Apple Pay analogy is faulty. My guy could have made Saifedean Amis' argument that Bitcoin has saleability across space, which my $5 bill lacks. But to understand much of what sets Bitcoin apart, you need to go well into the monetary plumbing weeds. What happens when we make a bank payment? What is money? International transfers or bank-issued Visa cards require identification in a way Bitcoin does not. They don't provide final settlement. Payments can be revoked later. Bank transfers are often deferred net settlements through real-time gross settlement payments are rolled out in a more and more central bank payment networks. Funds in Venmo and PayPal or others lower layers of the dollar banking system are permissioned in the sense that any of the half dozen entities required for a payment to be successful can block it for innocent technical reasons or more malign control slash authoritarian reasons. Thinking that an effortless Venmo payment is akin to an on-chain on Bitcoin transfer because they look and feel the same is a rather elementary error to make. They're both digital. They both involve money, whatever the hell that means. They both allow for transfer of value from one place to another. But in order to understand why they are different, you, like the Carl Sagan quote above, must first explain the whole monetary system. Where can it go wrong? What does it rely on? How does money enter into it? What are banks? Which, which entities have the power to block, delay, inspect, or charge fees for transactions? What you're risking by passively holding a constantly depreciating currency? To Gladstein's credit, he has an understanding of the banking realities of the bottom billion that dwarfs any payment troubles that most Westerners have ever encountered, but the average no-coiner does not. Which is why we routinely get news articles where some clever by half financial journalist lumps together Bitcoin with stable coins with non-fungible tokens and central bank digital currencies. Or when the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board says that CS, CBDCs make the need for Bitcoin or stable coins obsolete. They're all the same, really. New, hip, digital ways of storing and moving what seems to be the valuable things. 
The Fed is here to help steward the dollar system. So once its own fancy sounding technical solution is in place, there could be no need for private options. And programmable money sounds amazing, at least until the programming of the not so kind programmer stops you from purchasing what you require. From Gita Go Gopinath at the IMF, we learned that the Russian-Ukraine debacle would also spur the adoption of digital finance from cryptocurrencies to stable coins and central bank digital currencies. What about the conflict could possibly spur anything but Bitcoin? Finance is already digital. Fiat bank money is already digital. The Fed adjusts the monetary base digitally through purchases and sales of assets via its New York Fed branch. The dollar is already discretionary and permissioned, controlled, regulated, and surveilled. What does a central bank digital currency bring to the table? If anything, it would make the politi politicization of banking-related problems on both sides of the Dantes battlefield worse, with even more control by authoritarians who want to mandate what people may or may not do with their money. You don't need a blockchain or a token to do 99% of what cryptocurrency projects attempt to do. And the ones that appear to do something useful don't do that better than Bitcoin. Beyond the first few hours and days before international transfers could comfortably arrive to Ukraine's banks in bulk, there was nothing that cryptocurrencies, broadly speaking, could do for Ukraine. Its problem was real, not monetary. Help fleeing refugees smuggle out their savings against the hostile banking system? Sure, Bitcoin always excelled at that. But how would a CBDC, issued and governed by the National Bank of Ukraine fare, or worse, Ripple, whose CEO has proudly stated, quote, to clear any confusion, RippleNet, while being able to do much more than just meshing a la Swift, abides by international law and OFAC sanctions, period, full stop. End quote. Instead of being the permissionless, uncensorable FU money that Bitcoin aspires to, its cryptocurrency competitors proudly uphold censorship and government sanctions. Quote, RippleNet, for example, has always been and remains today committed to not working with sanctioned banks or countries that are restricted counterparties. Ripple and our customers support and enforce OFAC laws and KYC AML. Wow, it's really nice that they spoke for all their customers, isn't it? Whatever. Complying with authoritarian sanctions is the opposite of what freedom money does. I repeat, tech is not the thing. Digital is not the value add. The value add of Bitcoin is the liberty and independence that comes with holding your own money outright, unencumbered by a bank, a payment processor, a financial regulator, or a tax man. It's no longer being subject to the whimsical demands of your authoritarian ruler, democratically elected or not. It's to no longer suffer the asinine consequences of the monetary excesses that the dollar's current stewards have so catastrophically botched. Bitcoin is freedom money for a century of liberty. But to truly grasp why that is, you need to see what's wrong with the system it attempts to overthrow. Understanding how the fiat system works is fundamental to understanding Bitcoin. Yeah, that's the end of the article. Again, Joaquin Book, B-O-O-K, is writing that one. And yeah, I mean, clearly he's right. I, will add, I guess I need to add this. Understanding the monetary system, I don't even understand it. And I've been having to look at it 
with a new set of eyes since 2015. We're seven, I'm seven years on people. And it's not because I'm fucking stupid. Right. I mean, I'm, I, you know, no, I'm not going to win like, you know, the fields medal in mathematics or anything like that, or a Nobel prize, but for God's sakes, I ain't stupid. What I've come to determine about the legacy financial system as it stays today, as it is today, is it is essentially, it's essentially a swarm of locusts waiting to kill and eat to the ground anything that even remotely resembles being unhealthy. Two, more and more to the point, two, it's filled with people that use jargon and all manner of words to confuse you. And they're not doing it on purpose. This is the word, these are the words that they learned. The whole system is designed to keep you and me from understanding what's going on under the hood. Why? Because we're the market. We are individual locusts. And if we understood just how unhealthy this motherfucker really was, we would be gnawing it to the ground. We are the market. The market is a swarm of locusts. That swarm of locusts is looking for anything that is digestible. And the only thing that we can actually eat is that which is unhealthy in the market. Those Ponzi schemes, those shit coins. It's almost impossible to understand what has transpired for the last 10,000 years. Because all of what we see today is a culmination of that 10,000 years. Some people will argue with me, and that's okay. I happen to believe it's 10,000 years. Maybe it's 15. I don't know. But I guarantee you that this was built from all of the shit that we have today was built from the maniacal nature of the catastrophically flawed human individual. And we will eat ourselves to death. We're probably the only insect that might look at ourselves as unhealthy and go, well, shit, I can digest that. Let's, let's start gnawing our own arm off. Let's eat our own feet. You know, and it just it gets into a death spiral at that point. Without understanding why Bitcoin, then it doesn't matter if you actually understand how Bitcoin works. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter TikTok next block. It doesn't matter that transactions are going to come in in about two minutes from now. It doesn't matter how many transactions it holds. It doesn't matter that they're censorship resistant. It doesn't, none of that shit matters unless you understand why you need censorship resistance. Why TikTok next block is very important. If you don't understand what we're trying to fight, then you don't understand how to use the weapon to fight it. Because everything looks the same. It looks all rosy and peachy. Just remember the lesson of the plant in the soil. The plant by itself does not determine if the plant is healthy. The soil within which that plant puts its roots is the final determination as to the overall health of the plant and the resilience of that plant given certain external factors. And what we're seeing right now is the burning down of all the weak, all the unhealthy, all the chaff is blowing in the wind.
TikTok next block, and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.